All right, this morning we're going to try to cover three psalms. It'll be pretty easy. We'll be in Psalm 108, 109, and 110 this morning. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it and learn and, and uh, grow, have a deeper walk with you. That's our heart. Um, as we know, these writers of these songs um, just had such a great experience with you that they had to put it on paper. They understood some deep truths about you so that they had to write about it. And, uh, and we glean from that. We get, we get a benefit of those things. And so we thank you for these writers who loved you and were led by your spirit. And we thank you for putting these here for us to read. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the first one will go pretty quick. Psalm 108 is a combination of two psalms is all. Um, and I don't mean all, but you've heard of, uh, you know, mashups where they put two songs together. Well, that's, what, that's all they did here. In fact, the first uh, seven, let's see, first five verses are from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 57. Those are the exact same. Then he switches to Psalm 60, which are in this psalm, Psalm 108, going to be verses 6 through 13. They're the equivalent of Psalm 60's 5 through 12. Now, that's just data. I know it's not a big deal, but... Um, what he does here is he takes the best of both of those, not the best, but what he wants to focus on is that God has victory over our enemies, always does. And when he steps into our lives, when he decides to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, he has complete victory. Um, Now, I'm not going to go through each verse. I think that's all we're going to cover here on this Psalm 108, but it does set us up for Psalm 109, which is about his judgment. Now, the reason I put those two together is because when God does step in to take care of our enemy, who is Satan, and we need to understand that, it's complete and it's total victory that we have in God. It isn't partial. There's nothing that we can do to help or need to. And some people like that and some people don't. But my salvation that God has brought to me, given to me, um, by the by, by him defeating Satan at the cross is complete and total. Um, he doesn't leave me to do wipe up, you know, to do mop up afterwards. Like I got most of the things done. You're going to have to finish up maybe the last two or three, but I took care of 110 in your lives. And that's not the case. It's complete and total. And any doctrine that teaches otherwise is a dangerous doctrine, I think. To think that we have some kind of participation in the defeat of Satan, okay? We do accept that forgiveness. That is a role that we have. It's an offering made to us. Um, You either believe in the Lamb or you don't believe in the Lamb. You either accept Christ or you don't accept Christ. But there's no way that we participate in the defeating of Satan. He's done that completely and totally. So my salvation is sure. For, for some of us, or not us maybe, but those feel like, well, I want to have some say in it. I want to have some part in it. I want to have some glory in it. Now, they don't say glory, but they, they feel the need to say it was God and I, and we teamed up, and we defeated Satan together. When I find much more comfort in the fact that I don't have to do anything. It's complete and done. I, I walk in, and it's, it's, it's over with, you know. Um, my salvation is secure and it's safe um, and it's complete and total. And so that's what that 108 is. So we move to 109. I think we talked a little bit thus on Wednesday. So if you weren't here on Wednesday, I apologize for, for pulling this in, but I'll, I'll, do, I'll give you a little bit of this so that you didn't have to listen to the whole teaching. You can get the gist of it. Um, 
God in his word from Genesis to Revelation gives us the bits and pieces of his meal, because I believe this is the whole counsel of God, and it's a complete meal. He gives us the portions that we need. In other words, when we need to talk about God's judgment, if we go from Genesis to Revelation, we'll hit it as often as he wants us to. If we want to talk about marriage, as we go through Genesis to Revelation, we'll hit it as often as we need to. In other words, we're going to have just enough Brussels sprouts, just the right amount of potatoes, just the right amount of meat, and some dessert to boot mixed in there. If we eat properly, okay, we're going to have a well-balanced diet. So as we're going through the Psalms and we're talking about God's deliverance, he focuses now for judgment. I think that's important. Right before Easter, right before we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, there's judgment that we need to talk about. That's what happened. See, my sins were judged at the cross. They weren't, they weren't forgotten. They were paid for, you see. And so once they've been paid for, they're off my record. They never will ever show up again. They're not, they don't exist. They, it's been done. There's no, uh, what do they call it, uh, uh, double jeopardy. You know, we're, we're, we can't be tried for the same crime twice. It's already been done. The, the judgment, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for those. I don't have any more. Those don't ever come up again. There isn't a sin in my life that's going to be seen that, that wasn't completely taken care of at the cross. That's why we celebrate that. I've heard lots of, you know, foolish secular comedians say, you know, it's to celebrate Easter, to celebrate the crucifixion is like celebrating, you know, Kennedy's birthday with a rifle around your neck. Doesn't make any sense. Well, of course it wouldn't to an unbeliever. And of course everybody laughs in the audience. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. We hang a cross around our neck. That's what killed our Savior. No, it did. And we we wear those around our neck or we use that as a symbol because of how important it was, what took place there. It It was a very meaningful demonstration of God's love for us. It isn't, it isn't that we are gruesome or that we like the idea of it. It's just a reminder of that's the only and most powerful demonstration, not the only, that's the most powerful demonstration of Jesus's love for us is the cross. So that's why we, we wear it. That's why we celebrate it. And then, and then of course, the resurrection, which tells us that the cross satisfied, it worked. What's so important about Jesus getting up again? Because death couldn't hold him. Death can only hold uh, guilty people. But because he was innocent, death couldn't hold him. So he rose, which means he was a spotless lamb. You couldn't have a spotted lamb or a sinful lamb and have it work. I find it interesting. We look in our society today and we see people kind of in Christian circles start to argue the importance of Christ's sinlessness, Jesus's sinless life. Well, I mean, you know, he, you know, he had probably had a relationship with Mary Magdalene. He probably, there's all sorts of little things that even in Christendom, our group, our faith are beginning to dabble in like, what, what's the big deal? The big deal is he's not a spotless lamb anymore. And a spotless lamb is held in the grave. And a spotless lamb is an impure sacrifice which God doesn't accept, which means the cross was of no effect, which means your sins still rest upon your head and upon your heart, and you still owe. It's a big deal. These aren't small things. They seem small in the name of, of, well, you know, 
it goes alongside with what we talked about this last week, you know, explaining away miracles. Are they that important? Is it that big of a deal? They are. Every bit of it is. When you begin to knock these things off of it, like, I don't think that's important for Christianity. I don't think that's important for my faith. There's so much attached in your faith to the one thing you scratched off. You have to scratch off everything else under it too because it was attached to that truth. That truth can't go away or it takes a hundred with it, a hundred more. And then those were attached. It's exponential destruction of your faith. It's very important. So as we get into this, and I will get into it, this Psalm 109, we talk about God's wrath, his judgment, which we like to think of Jesus as the one who died and saved us, is gracious and merciful, and he is. But he's, he's that now as a lamb, but he doesn't stay that way. He comes back as a lion. And the whole point of him coming as a lamb first was so that when he comes back as a lion, as few a people as possible get that judgment, get that wrath, but make no mistake about it, that's still happening and still coming. That understanding of the lion coming, which everybody knew in the Old Testament at least, I don't know that 2023 every Christian knows that or not, or every unbeliever knows that, but that's what causes us to realize, wait, I have a wrath coming. I have a sentencing day. I have a day of atonement that I have to do for myself. Now I need some good news because I don't know how I'm going to defend myself. I don't know how I'm going to win this court case. I don't have any standing. I'm going to stand before a judge and I know I'm guilty. He knows I'm guilty. Everybody around me knows I'm guilty. I've got witnesses coming out from under all the rocks in my life saying, guilty, 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 he did this to me, she did that to me, whatever. I'm in trouble. And so Christ comes and says, I will pay for all of those sins. I will take your entire guilt, shame, rap sheet and put it upon mine and I will pay for it. I will take it all. Do you want the deal? I mean, sign me up, right? So how important is it that we talk about the wrath of God? There is no reason to come to Christ if there is no wrath of God. There is no reason to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There is no reason to be in this room this morning if there's no wrath of God. And as we argue and talk about the wrath of God not being there anymore, out there in all these other churches, not all other churches, but there's so many of them that are becoming watered down in this area. You can't wipe this out and expect this to be valid anymore. You, how do you celebrate? What do you celebrate on Easter? That we killed somebody? Now it is weird. Now you just made it weird, unless he's the sacrifice, which he is. So, Psalm 109. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. We call this a messianic psalm. Although he is talking about himself and his own personal enemies, there is something prophetic about this. 
doesn't, it's hard to ignore the fact that it's shadowing Christ. It's obviously. They've done these wicked things to me. I've done nothing but prayer. I've done nothing but love them. And what they've rewarded me with is evil. My, they've given me hatred for my love. And they, and they did. And we crucified him. Um, his response to this is, in verse 6, is because they've rejected me. So we're covering a lot of ground here. Yes, they crucified him. Yes, that's, that's what was supposed to happen. We don't want to say that we wish it hadn't happened. You know, um, there was an argument when the Passion came out with Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion came out. <laughs> the Catholics didn't like it because it put them in a bad light because of Rome. And then the Jews didn't like it because it put them in a bad light because of, uh, because of the Pharisees and everybody crying out, crucify him. And they were all upset that this was, look, this makes everybody look bad. I'm like, I guess I don't understand why it shouldn't make us all look bad. That's the point. Uh, I'm not the hero of that story because I would have cried crucify him as well. I'm just as bad as everybody else in that crowd. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Roman. It doesn't make any difference. Um, we don't wish that it hadn't happened. I mean, Christ's death on the cross is the reason we live. Although we wish it wasn't necessary for it to take place, I'm very thankful that it did. And that's not weird. It, it's, it saved my life. It's, it's, a, it's in humble adoration and thankfulness that I celebrate Easter. Not, yea, we killed an innocent man, but yea, an innocent man offered himself for me, willingly gave his life for me. That's amazing. I, that's an anniversary that I'll celebrate. So as he switches from, this is what they did to me, he's now moving between verses 5 and 6 to, and have rejected that salvation, okay? They've continued on, not only the hatred that nailed him to the cross, but never coming to the repentance of, I wish we hadn't sinned, but have stayed there, good, I'm glad he's dead, kind of thing. So verse 6, set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged... Let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. If you don't want the advocate, Jesus Christ, standing next to you at your court case saying all of his sins have been paid for, then this is, this is what you get. You get the accuser standing next to you, a wicked man. And our accuser is Satan, so he stands next to you. No, no, I didn't sign up for that. I'd like to represent myself. Well, that's not how it works in eternity. That's not how it works in God's economy. You're either going to have Jesus as your advocate, or you're going to have Satan as your accuser. There's, there's no other option, okay? Um, that's how it goes. And he's going to be found guilty. It says, and let his prayer become sin. Now, I underline that because isn't it interesting that there's a point where my prayer can become a sin. The fact that I'm praying a certain way or saying a certain thing can become sin. And I want to know what that is. I'm not saying that our prayers, we have to be so careful that, I think between our mouth and God's ears, the Holy Spirit has a way of, uh, this is what he means. This is what she means, you know, kind of thing. Um, And is an advocate for us and is always interceding for us, being an intercessor between us and God. But this person says, this this is going to be sin. Now, here's the verses I came up with that 
In John chapter 16, verses 22 through 24, this is how you're supposed to pray when you pray. Therefore, you now have sorrow, Jesus says, but I will see you again and your, your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And he's saying, now before I'm crucified, you're, you're, you're kind of sorrowful thinking about it, but you're going to be okay when you see me again. And in that day, when you see me again, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, the scripture has been twisted all sorts of different ways. I think it's very easy to interpret this to get it right. What can you pray in the name of Jesus? That's not sin. What is the name of Jesus? It's in his nature. It's in his kindness. It's, it's a prayer that he would pray, you know. So when I'm praying, say, God, give me a Mercedes or give me a Cadillac. I don't know what your car preference is. Makes no difference. Is that a prayer that Jesus would pray or is that something I've twisted this scripture? He says I can ask whatever I want. He's going to give it to me. So I'm praying for that. But is that in Jesus's name? Is that in his nature? I'm praying for that guy who just sped past me. God, get him. Send a highway patrolman right now and pull him over. In Jesus' name. Uh, it kind of ruins it, doesn't it, when you pull his name into it? Now I need some funny, easy targets. But that does keep us on the straight and narrow when it comes to our prayer. Can I pray this in Jesus' name? Is it in his nature? Is it in his character? Is it how he conducted himself? Is it consistent with who he is? That's a prayer that will get answered yes every time. Every time. The second verse I came up with was James chapter 4. James is a little, he's not as easy as Jesus. He calls it like it is. In verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, if you stopped there, you'd say, oh, okay, so all I got to do is ask. I don't have to fight for it. I can just ask for it. And he'll give it to me. No, it goes on. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's part two. Not only is it in the character and nature of Christ, but does it benefit other people or just you? It doesn't mean it doesn't want to help you with your problems or with your difficulties or with understanding. Don't get me wrong. James is just a good brother. He says, you guys are lusting and coveting for stuff. You're murdering. You're, doing, you're assassinating characters through your gossip. All to gain advantage. And when you do ask and pray in that kind of nature, in that kind of name, you don't get anything because God's not going to answer that kind of prayer in the affirmative anyway. And then he goes on, adulterers and adulteresses, both of you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are you praying for worldly stuff or worldliness, you know? I wish someone would notice me. You want fame from the world. That's what you want. Because God knows this is you. He's already told you in his word. I want wealth beyond measure. I want to have three yachts. You know, a Bugatti and whatever. Probably not in this crowd, but maybe some of you folks have thought about it. But that's just lusting and going after the worldly stuff. 
God is interested in changing us from the inside out. So when I, if I, if I know that's his focus, what, what is the will of God? Your sanctification, the scriptures tell us that. Your sanctification is the will of God. If I pray for sanctification, that's a prayer he'll say yes to. God, I want to be different from this world. I want to be set apart. I want to be, I don't want to be noted with them. I want to minister to them, but I want to look more like you each and every day. All day long, that's a yes. God, I want to look like the world. I want to have what the world has. I want to be successful in the world and according to their standards. That's a good dad is going to say, no, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I don't want to give that to you. That'll destroy you. That'll ruin you. You'll stop talking to me. You'll stop walking with me. You'll stop leaning on me. You'll stop trusting in me. Your faith will decrease. It won't increase. These are things I don't want from you. I have a terrible habit of just giving my kids what they want. Not all the time, but I just, that's my default. Oh, sure. You know, dad, can we stop at McDonald's? Sure. I mean, what's wrong with McDonald's? Well, (laughs) once in a while is fine, but this will be the seventh time this week or the fifth time this week. Oh, so my yes needs to be once in a while. No, we probably need to wait a little bit and let all those things flush out of our system if they can, if they're not if they polymerized in us or whatever. But I just have that default. And God is a very good father. He says, no, I want to give you that because that's going to really help you, you know. Jenny's very good at spotting and teaching responsibility. I'm, I'm not very good at it. I was so surprised when they got these dogs, you know, that we have. They're going to take care of them. They're going to pay for their food. They're going to be responsible for them. And, of course, everybody says that. But from my experience, that never, ever happens. Eventually, yeah, right. It does now. Because I'm like, they're like, oh, we got to buy food. Is it food day today? No, it's not cheap. Two dogs, two bags of food, two locations, feed them, you know, and they're, they're getting out, you know, and they're looking through their money. And of course, my instant say is like, I got it. Don't worry about it. I'll buy the dog food. And Jenny's like, no, they need to buy the dog food. And they do. They buy the, I know this is dumb. It shouldn't be an epiphany to me, but it is. Our father is very careful. It's very important. It's not about the money and it's not about do we have it? Of course, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Could he get, he could make everyone in here a billionaire if he wanted to. Every, he is not poor. But why doesn't he? I have to ask myself that because I want you to work. I don't want to work. <laughs> I want you to work. I don't want you to have muscle atrophy. I don't want you to have mental atrophy. I don't want you to be atrophy at all. I want you to grow. I want you to exercise. I want you to get outside. You don't have to buy a treadmill. You don't have to have a gym membership. I'm just going to make you lift heavy bales of hay every day for the rest of, you know. Oh, I see. It's for your benefit I'm doing these things and I'm saying no to you. I know what you need. I made you. So, James is a good brother. He says, quit asking for worldly stuff. All right. Good job. Now, uh, verse 9. Well, verse 8. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. 
let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Now, this, if you don't know, this is from Acts chapter 1, verse 20, when the, the, Jesus has uh, ascended finally into heaven, and they've been told to wait in Jerusalem for the filling of the Holy Spirit. They're all saved. They all have the Holy Spirit, but he wants to baptize them with the Holy Spirit that they might have power to serve God. So he says, I want you to wait till that happens. So they're believers. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but I want you to wait. And that happens in Acts chapter 2. But we've got a chapter before them where they're sitting around in the upper room waiting for this to happen, and they begin to think, and they read this scripture. Let another take his office. And they're talking about Judas. Judas was a run of the original 12. They're down to 11. We need to get back up to 12. Let's have a vote. Who should it be? They picked Matthias. This is the verse that they pull up for here. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditors seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. There is hope here at the minute. Hold on. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. I bring that up because some of you come from that background. You do. Some of you come from a father or a mother who did not walk with God, who was a child of Satan. You would never say that out loud because I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. But if truth be told, they never once glorified God all the way to their deathbed. They cursed him. And that's what he's talking about here. And you, now that you're a believer or now that you're in that place, are having to start, I mean, you are the first in your, in your gen, of, of, of your lineage. This generation has to start that walk. And God calls you to that. And some people get so paralyzed, and I want to stop you from being paralyzed. That's the hope here. You are not who they were. You are not a product of who they were. You are going to walk with the Lord. You're accountable for your walk, what you're going to do, your decisions. Their decisions may have left you desolate, plundered, nothing for you. You're starting from, it's as if you weren't, it's like you were, never had parents, some of you. Now, I've, I haven't grown up that way. But I've had enough conversations with people that have. It's up to you to start walking with the Lord. I'm, I'm freeing you up this morning if you're stuck in that. I am who I am. I'm because of, I'm a product of my, of my past. But Paul says, I leave those things in the rearview mirror. I leave them. I count them as loss. I call them as debt. I leave those things in the past and I press on towards the goal. If you stay stuck in that place of I am who they were, your kids will be stuck because you are who you were and they were who you were and you're going to have this and they, I think that's a, the term they use today. It's the wrong term, but the generational curse. It's a generational choice. You're not bound to that at all. You've been set free by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're free completely of all those things. Forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on towards the goal, the high calling of Jesus Christ. That's what I do. Don't live there. Forgive them. I can't. No, you can. You're not. 
God has given you the ability to forgive every single person in your life. You have that power. He's given that to you. If you haven't, I know this is tough love, but it's a choice you've made. You can let that go. You can forgive them. I don't say you can forget it. Of course not. The hurt's still there. They're the same person. I understand they haven't changed. Your forgiveness can't be dependent upon whether they change or not. Your forgiveness is because I'm leaving those things which lie behind. I'm having a clear conscience as I move forward and press on towards the high calling of Jesus Christ in my life. I want to grow. I want to move on. I don't want to be stuck here with you. I'm severing that with forgiveness. That's how you cut off that, with forgiveness. That comes up more and more today. More and more people, I realize, are still bound by some sin that someone did against them because they can't or won't forgive. And I understand why, and I get the reasoning, and I want you to know something, though, because I'm not one-on-one with you right now. It's very hard to say to someone one-on-one. It's much easier in a group like this. But you're not going through anything that someone else hasn't already gone through. There's nothing new under the sun. You're not exclusive. You don't have some special past that's outside of Scripture. You don't. It's the same. And so you can forgive. If God says you can forgive, for you to say you can't is to be contrary to God's word. Forgive. Well, it's not as easy as that. You forgive. Feelings may follow. I don't know if they will or not, but forgiving is a choice. You just choose to forgive them. And you say it out loud if you have to. I forgive. I forgive them. And that's for you. That's for you to move forward. This is a tough place. I can't believe I'm the son or the daughter of someone who has this kind of, you know, six verses written about them. Some scriptures I want to give you. I hope this helps. Ezekiel 18 is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. He lays it out for us. Gives us the mechanics of it all. I like mechanics. I like to know how it works. Don't just tell me to forgive. How does this work? In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? God is literally calling out what we do today. I am who my parents made me. My parents ate sour grapes, and now my teeth hurt. It's not how it works. That's a false proverb back then. It's a false proverb today. What it does is it makes people feel better about continuing in their sin and their defeated life. It's not my fault. I mean, I wish I could change, but... I mean, I wish I could move forward, but... It gives me all the excuses I need to wallow and to stay. I use the Marine Corps way too much, but it was so impactful to me. Such a short amount of time, but I learned so much. I had no idea at the time how much God was doing in me and how much he trained me and taught me. But there were so many times when I couldn't, and the people around me, although they didn't say it in a nice, friendly way, told me that you can. I didn't believe them until I did. 
And I stood there at graduation going, oh my goodness, I did it. I didn't think I could do it. And there I am. Here I am, did it. There is this hill that you have to climb out of. I mean, you, you got to go up to the rifle range for, I don't know how many weeks it was, two weeks, four weeks. And on your way out, you've got to hike out with your pack on and everything. And the name of the hill has a specific name that I can't say at church. But it was hard. And you know how it is, how your legs just stop. I don't know if you've ever exercised that far to where it goes to muscle failure. And you just, I can't, they're just jello. I mean, I, I literally can't make my legs move. And everybody else is doing great. I don't have strong legs. I just don't. That was my excuse, you know. And so I'm probably three quarters of the way up this hill. And I'm like, I'm just shake, just, I'm glad I'm standing. And, you know, if you sit, you're done. So I'm just standing there. And these, my buddies are walking past me going, and they're just sweating. And, you know, every time your, your legs are, your pants are bloused, they call it, turned up. And they filled with sweat. Because you've starched them, you know, you're not supposed to starch them, but you do anyway, so you look good. And they're starched, so there's no water. It's not porous anymore at all. It's like wearing a plastic bag. And you're, every time you kick, the sweat's coming off, and there's probably two inches of sweat in that blouse. And they're walking past me, and they're sweating. And they don't look at me. They don't, sit, they don't, they don't acknowledge me, but they say, come on, you can do it. And I'm like, no, I can't. And then I watch them, and they're, they're doing it. Why aren't they... And so I just, I just did. It was one foot in front of the other. It was a step at a time. I wasn't the last guy up the hill. Let's put it that way. It definitely wasn't the first or the 50th, but I wasn't the last guy up the hill. When we talk about spiritual things that seem, that's, oh, that's, that's a level 400 class in college, you know, or above. You can't say, what is this proverb that you're saying that you're using it as an excuse? My fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God. So you know it's important when he swears that way. As I live, if anybody lives, you do. You shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Stop saying it. That's the first step. Stop saying it, that you have an excuse. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, in other words, offered up sacrifices to other gods, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. If he has not uh, exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. Now, some of you are like, well, I I didn't do some of those things. What he's saying is, You're responsible for you. He finishes up with this in verse 20. We can skip ahead. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. So you may be great parents, and you've got horrible, rotten kids. That's not on you. They're responsible for them. You're responsible for you. The righteous 
wickedness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. It's a very good understanding of it. I am responsible for my decisions. No matter what I grew up with, good, bad, or ugly, these are mine. And I can change that, and I can do these things. And change, and be the righteous person. Very important. Verse 17. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let him be to him like a garment which covers him and for a belt which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. Um, Judgment takes place. Now that's the end of the judgment portion of this. Then he finishes up with some praises. That's what's going to take place in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 25 through 28. Not that he should suffer himself often. He's speaking of the, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. Not that he should, should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy. Every year with blood of another, he then would have to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Very clear understanding of this. Judgment is coming. There is no after you die trying to figure it out or try to work it out. Once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Judgment. You're set. You live this life on this earth right now to make a choice as to whether you're going to die in your sins or die with Christ paying for your sins. Those are the options. The judgment comes afterwards. Now, he hits on a subject here that's very near and dear to my heart. I grew up in a certain denomination that believed in consubstantiation, which is different from transubstantiation, which is talking about communion. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Good. Be ignorant. You don't want to learn this stuff. Transubstantiation is where the priest offers up the bread, and when it comes down from lifting it up high, it becomes the body of Christ, even though it still looks like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread, it's actually his flesh. And when you eat it, you get the flesh. Because you're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood according to what they believe, which is wrong. I grew up in a denomination that believed in consubstantiation, where they do all the prayers and the blessings, but the bread doesn't become the flesh until it reaches your mouth. Then it becomes the flesh. I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? It's like, that's not a big step. Yeah, but we're different. We're not Catholics. We're, we're, I want to say it so bad. I just, people get so offended when I bring it up. He hates Catholics. No, it's just false doctrine that I hate. I love Catholics. I love Lutherans. It's just false doctrine. It's not true. It's not biblical. I grew up with, I was Lutheran. So what's, it's not true, nor can in either of those cases pass your faith on to the baby when you christen them, which they both believe. It's not true. The faith of the priest, the faith of the pastor cannot be passed on to the child in infancy so that their salvation rests upon that christening moment. That's, that's not 
biblical. It's not even theirs. Nothing there. What, what they did, and I don't think they understand what they did, was they, they just duplicated Judaism, but with Christian flair. They still have a priest who offers up daily sacrifices and crucifies Christ over and over again, like the lambs that were all meant to point us to the crucifixion of Jesus happened continually. Of course they did. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that's done with. He died once. He never gets crucified again. It's once for all. Now we do this in remembrance of that event. We don't do it again and again and again. It's once. Because those were a shadow of things to come. Christ is the substance that casts the shadow. He came, and the, the scriptures are clear. I don't, I don't know how much more to say about that except that. The judgment is done. It was completed at the cross. There is nothing more. There is no, there's no mortal sins versus venial sins. There is no some he paid for, some you paid for. There is no continuation. It's finished. Now, one part of Scripture, it says the blood of Jesus continually washes us. But that means he's, it's effective. It's continually effective. It doesn't continually need to be made or created or reenacted over and over again. It's, it just still is. Anybody that comes to Christ and receives that forgiveness of sins, the blood of Jesus washes them of their sin. They didn't have to crucify him again. It's just there. It's in a continual uh, state of effectiveness. So... I'm hitting everybody today. Verse 21. But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also become a reproach to them, When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that I may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. In other words, save me in such a way that no one can explain it away. As coincidence or, no, it's you. Let them curse that you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. God, I want to be on your side. I feel like I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ in my life. I feel like I've accepted you, but I still feel like I'm being reproached like you were reproached. And Peter says we should expect that. I want to hesitate and stop myself from saying the life of a Christian is drudgery and joy. You know, it's a life of suffering and and a wasted 80 years in this world. Enjoy. It's not. He just wants to explain to you the hatred that's coming upon you from this world. When you join that kingdom, 
and you've experienced grace and mercy and, and the fragrance of Christ, that beauty, that, that lightness, that joy in your heart, and you come back into a worldly situation where you're trying to minister to everybody, it is hard. It is. It's war. Nobody likes to go to war. Nobody likes to be in those places. I mean, I, everybody loves missions trips, but everybody likes to come home too, you know? And that's all he's getting at. I feel like in this situation where I am, not in heaven with you, not in a perfect world, not in a sinless condition like I'd like to be where there is no, the environment's perfect. Here's where I am and it's hard. Many understands that because he's someone who can sympathize with our weakness. He's someone who's been where we are. He's lived here. He's walked this walk in 33 years of this. He knows. And he had it way worse than we do. So he can identify with that. And that's that's what he's saying here. And we're not going to get this last psalm done. So it's short, but we'll hit it next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the time we've spent, the things we've learned. Your judgment is so important foundationally to our understanding of our own faith. We have to hold it and know it. We're so thankful that we don't have it. There is no judgment waiting for us. Our judgment was placed upon your son. And we're grateful for that. And as we get closer and closer to Easter, and we think about this time of celebrating Resurrection Sunday, um, we're thankful for this salvation we have in you. We're, we understand how close it was. We understand how much jeopardy there was walking in our own ways. That was a perilous life that we were going to live. And at the end of it, we were going to lose. And because you came and did what you did, we no longer have that future. Our future and our hope is is now made bright and beautiful because of what you've done. And we're so thankful that that we have that to look forward to. You wanted to save as many people as possible before you you come back as the lion, Lord, and and you're still about that. You still want that mission accomplished. Lord, I pray that we'd be about your business, trying to save as many people from the time that's coming when you do return as a as a lion. Help us to introduce them to you as the lamb now, that they might receive that forgiveness. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. We'd be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.